are casual social interactions that sometimes happen in uh, the context of a larger social gathering uh, like we have here on Sunday mornings. And we talked a little bit about that last week when we were together, and we said, what is the difference between an acquaintance and a friend? And we're talking a little bit about the fact that acquaintances, particularly in North America, when we're in a, a larger group of people, we have a bit of a nasty habit of posturing ourselves in certain ways. We tell people certain things about ourselves, that who we are, how we're feeling or coping, uh, even standard information as to what we do with our time, where our paychecks come from, and how exciting or boring of a person we are. We're always trying to kind of communicate certain things to people in larger social settings. So we choose our words or our stories carefully to try and most often convince people that uh, they should like us, that we're a good person in the acquaintance circle that they may want to consider at some point moving into the friend circle. And we choose our, our stories and our words and the things that we let uh, people into in our lives fairly carefully, usually. And we talked about that, this last week, that sometimes that allows some people from the circle of acquaintance into the circle of friend. But even with our friends, once someone gets into that friendship circle, they, we can be guarded and superficial. And we can be motivated sometimes uh, by a fear of what those friends would do if they found out more about the real us. And a deep fear about what the people closest to us might do if they found out uh, who the real person was behind our name tags. So unmasking that reality uh, and giving us the tools to cultivate some deeper and more authentic friendships is part of the goal of our five-part series that we've been going through this fall uh, called The Wisdom of Friendship. And the Wisdom of Friendship series is rooted in what does the Bible say to us, particularly in the wisdom literature. That's the section in the center of our Bibles, uh, books like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, that have lots of uh, good things to say to us about this topic of friendship, wise advice uh, from people that uh, lived a long time ago and wrote stuff down. So this is part four of five. And next week, Pastor Keith is going to ask the question, why does the Bible use some of the language of friendship to talk about what it means to be connected with God? Uh, and today we're going to build on last week's discussion question, uh, which was what makes a good friend? Last week we talked a little bit about the difference uh, between a two, true friend that stands with you in a time of challenge and adversity and trouble. And there are certain actions that a friend uh, will take to prove that they're a genuine friend. So today we're going to take a look at another one of those actions that true friends take to demonstrate uh, that they are genuinely a friend. And when necessary, a true friend confronts and corrects us. So we're going to talk about what that looks like uh, this morning as we look at trusted wounds from a friend uh, from the book of Proverbs uh, chapter 27. And some of you might uh, think about what that might look like. Have you ever been in a situation where you know that your friend is in the wrong, but you're not sure if one of these times, if this is one of those times where you ought to correct them? I mean, there's times when when, you know, it's kind of fair game to correct your friends uh, at any given time. Let's say they show up at your house and they're just wearing something ridiculous. And they're a good friend of yours. You have the authority as a friend usually to say, seriously, you're going to go out of your house looking like that? Like that, most of us would feel that would be something that would be fairly, 
know, fairly on par. That'd be onside for a friend to be able to correct you on if they were a good enough friend. Spouses are nodding their heads and saying, yes, we do that usually before the, my husband leaves the house so that we can get rid of all of those things. But I'm not talking about your friend making a poor choice uh, in a shirt to wear or a bad call maybe on their latest spot that they got their hair cut or a bad uh, purchase that you thought they made of no particular consequence. The question is, how do you know when to call your friend on some particularly bigger issues in their lives? How do you make that judgment call? And then not only how do you make that call, but how do you actually go about the process of engaging in a dialogue with them in that? Because most often in our culture, we, haven't, we, we seldom give friends the authority to speak into our lives at that level of deep correction and influence. We usually reserve that for either maybe a very, a very, very select group of individuals, or some of us never actually let people into our lives in those places at all. We'll let friends tell us that we made a bad choice in a movie, or that my driving could use some improvement, or that you should try harder to be on time. But when it comes to maybe some deeper issues of character, oftentimes, we'll say to our friends, implicitly or explicitly, you don't really have permission to go there with me. And unfortunately, it's a rare occasion, occasion where a friend can actually put their finger on something in our life, name it, and be constructive in the way that they walk through a, a process of change with us in our lives. We like people to know and observe certain perhaps more superficial things and they can correct that stuff all they want. They can tell us about that we should have taken a different job. They can tell us and challenge us and say, well, you should have done that exciting thing that you never got around to doing in your life. But when it comes to those parts of our lives that really we want to guard and protect in some ways, we don't often let people in there. We protect our pride and our privacy to the point that often it makes it very difficult for people around us to tell us the truth. It's a bit like Hans Christian Andersen's uh, classic Danish fairy tale, The Emperor's New Clothes. In the story, which uh, many of you will be familiar with, there's two uh, charlatans that come to town and convince the emperor that they are going to weave for the emperor the best and finest new clothes that have ever been seen. And so the emperor, this speaks to the emperor's pride, and the emperor thinks, this is fabulous. I, I'm so excited that I have these people working for me. And they lock themselves in a room, and frankly, they do nothing. But they're able to convince everyone that the thread that they are weaving is invisible to the eye. But only wise sages, people with a lot of smarts and intelligence can see this. So they are able to convince people that even though everybody looks at the emperor and knows that the emperor is wearing no clothes at all, that if they're a wise person, they would see that this is the finest thread ever. So everybody buys it. And everyone goes around, and the emperor actually has a huge parade that he goes, and everyone says, oh, look at the emperor's new clothes, look at the emperor's new clothes. And finally, in the tale, if you're familiar with it, a child says, the emperor has no clothes on, pointing out the obvious truth that everyone else can see, but nobody else has had the courage to actually name and put their finger on it. And it takes a child who's not impressed by all of the pretense and pomp and circumstance to actually put their finger on the reality of the situation. They're not fooled by it in any way, and so the whole charade falls apart. 
And so part of the question that we want to wrestle with this morning is, in our friendships with each other, what are those things that we have the courage to name? What are those things that we actually have the courage and the capacity to name, to put our finger on, and to be able to walk through constructively with our friends through a process of healing and change? I suspect a part of our hesitancy uh, around this issue might be because we have difficulty with the easier question, which is, what should I confront my friend on and what should I just let go? But the Bible actually gives us some good instruction and advice and some good marker points in this whole question. Passages like Matthew chapter 18 and others, which go beyond the scope of our discussion and focus this morning, but you'll be diving into them in your Momentum Journal uh, reading together this week. But there's also a great example of this uh, that happens in the New Testament in Galatians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, turn there uh, with me this morning. Pastor Keith likes to joke that this is my favorite text, but it isn't my favorite text, but it is really kind of a lot of fun to read. Uh, And what happens in Galatians chapter 2 is that in the early part and the spread of the Christian movement, as it begins to move out from uh, its origins in Jerusalem after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the message of the gospel begins to cross all kinds of cultural and social barriers and boundaries. And so people are coming and responding to the message of Jesus' life and his authority and his resurrection. And so suddenly we have groups of people coalescing together that previously have not hung out before. So we have Jews and Gentiles and Greeks, people of all kinds of different socioeconomic standings, gathering together and of all ethnicities and nationalities and religious histories, and they're all shoved together in this thing called the church. And this makes for some interesting disagreements in the early parts of the Christian movement because the question keeps coming up then, as it does now, what are the cultural elements of Christianity that we need to confront and challenge each other on? And what are the core elements of the gospel that are irreducible and that ought to be agreed upon by all people at all times? So this question keeps coming up, and you can read through the New Testament. It comes up in all kinds of different ways. But in Galatians chapter 2, we see two of the most prominent leaders and good friends in the early New Testament church get into a heated discussion around this. We have, on the one hand, Peter, whose work uh, as a disciple of Jesus, and then by virtue of his geographical location, he most often hangs out uh, with Jews because he's still in and around Jerusalem and Judea. And so that's kind of his cultural background. And then Paul, who is a good friend of Peter's, uh, he begins to move out in mission all around the ancient Near East, And he begins to really work with a group uh, called the Gentiles or non-Jews. And there's baggage that comes with the cultural elements of this. And so uh, one time they get together uh, for a meeting in a place called Antioch. And so Peter comes up, Paul comes down, they're hanging out with everybody. And in Galatians chapter 2, we get to see a little bit of how this conversation unfolds. And Peter decides that even though he knows that He shouldn't just hang around with the people that are like him, his friends and his buddies, because he can challenge them on stuff. They can challenge him on stuff all day. And it doesn't doesn't really push into that place 
in their life and relationships. He knows that he should be extending himself in friendship, and God's actually given him some very specific uh, a vision in the book of Acts that he knows this to be true. And so he goes up to Antioch and starts to hang out, but he falls into some bad habits and old patterns. So he starts hanging out with just those who are like him, whom it's really easy for him to be friends with. And Paul kind of gets right up in his face and says, listen, buddy, this is not how we want to treat each other. This is not what the gospel calls us to. The gospel transcends all of these easy-to-hang-out-with type things. And so uh, Peter is clearly in the wrong. So Paul gets up in his face, and Paul names it as hypocrisy, that though Peter talks like they're all equals before Jesus, he doesn't act like that. He just hangs out with certain ethnicities. So Paul names this as hypocrisy and gets it in his face, and this is the fun verse to read. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, When Peter came to Antioch, Paul says, I had to oppose him to his face. I had to get right up in his face and say to him, Listen, what you're doing is very wrong. And so as a friend, Paul recognizes that this is one of those times in those categories where he had to address the issue, he had to name it, he had to get right up in Peter's face and say, listen, this is inappropriate. For those of us who have been called and united by Jesus and his family, for you to just hang out with the people that you're buddy-buddy with and to say we're all equal but to not treat others like they're all equal at the foot of the cross, this is not acceptable. And there's actually a, a good old-fashioned word that the Bible uses for these types of conversations. We don't use it a whole lot, bunch uh, anymore, but when a friend challenges another friend in this way, the Bible usually uses the word reproof or rebuke. And uh, it might be time for us to resurrect a good old-fashioned reproof or rebuke every now and then in this category. And the word itself literally means to redirect or to challenge or to channel a person away from a certain course of thought or action with their long-term health in mind. So you're engaged in a conversation with somebody, and this isn't about you know, their shirt or their haircut or anything. This is about some deeper and more substantive issues in their life. You're wanting to correct them with a view to their long-term health and the long-term health of their relationship with Jesus. But notice that a rebuke or a reproof still stings. It still hurts in some way. The Bible doesn't pull any punches on that one. Uh, an example would be Psalm chapter 141, verse 5, where uh, the writer says, Let a righteous person strike me. It's a kindness. Let them rebuke me because it's like oil on my head. My head will not refuse it. Ouch. This is a righteous person. It's like getting a good old-fashioned slap upside the head when you get a rebuke from a, a friend, from a person who's righteous. Let them strike me, the text says. It's, it's like a kindness to me, but it still hurts. It doesn't take away the sting of it in any way. And the metaphor here is, yeah, it's like a blow to the head. It's enough to jar you or to knock some sense into you. And even though it hurts in the short term, it's an act of kindness when it's done in an appropriate way and with right motives that should be, not be refused. And our text this morning from Proverbs puts that uh, in very, very similar 
terms. Proverbs chapter 27, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Proverbs chapter 27 says it this way, because a a wound uh, will rebuke you, a rebuke will wound you rather. But when it comes from friends, you need to trust it if they have your best interest at heart. Proverbs 27 verse 5 says, better is an open rebuke than hidden love. In other words, uh, a lot of people around you will tell you all of the time in work environments or in other places uh, that you're the greatest person ever. They're, oh, you're doing such a fabulous job at this. Oh, you're doing a great job at that. Um, or they'll, they'll kind of pat you on the back, but it really doesn't mean a whole lot. Better, Proverbs says, an, an open rebuke if you really want to move in the right direction. Because, verse 6, wounds from a friend can be trusted. But sometimes an enemy multiplies kisses. In other words, those people that tell you all the time that you're such a wonderful and great person, they may not actually be your friends. They may have their own agenda that they're trying to advance. They may just be multiplying kisses in the language of Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6. People in your life might be name-tag quality friends. They might tell you certain things about yourself. They might flatter you. They might tell you what you want to hear. They might uh, puff you up. But if the truth ever needs to be spoken, these are the people that are not around to do it. This is where a true friend, though, steps up to the plate. They name the things in your life that need to be called out on. They say, uh, they call a spade a spade, whatever, you want to, whatever metaphor you want to use. They say, the emperor has no clothes on. Let's just name the issue and address and move forward in a healthy and productive way. And I don't know how many of you have had this experience of having friends speak the truth into your life, but I can tell you from experience, personal experience, that it really is not that much fun. Um, Proverbs 27 uses the word wounds from a friend for good reason, because it hurts. It's going to cut into that part of your ego and into that part of yourself and your life that a lot of us try and guard and protect. I can remember about uh, four years ago in, in the summer when uh, Jericho Ridge was just uh, starting out and um, we were uh, going through uh, a time, things were going really well, we were having a lot of fun, and Jericho was about one year old and uh, people were coming to faith, we were experiencing great partnerships with other uh, Christians in the community and reaching uh, out into the neighborhoods that God had called us to be here and about in Willoughby. And uh, that first summer we were planning, uh, or it was, yeah, the second summer of Jericho Ridge, we were planning to do a, a neighborhood outreach with another church. And we were going to do like a community carnival, and it was going to be lots of fun. So we got kind of into the planning process with this. And then uh, after we had already started with that, picked the date and everything, um, my grandpa called and said, hey, listen, Brad, I want to take you and your uh, dad and all the grandkids uh, up fishing. Uh, would you be able to come? So we talked it through and thought, yeah, okay, that would be lots of fun. Uh, let's go hang out uh, with the family. And it was the same weekend, and I figured, no worries. We can still push ahead. We can still make this thing happen. So we kind of got into the, the planning cycle, and everything, at least I thought, was going along really well. Uh, those who are detailed people would tell you that's not the case because I'm more of a big picture person. So we were kind of motoring along through the planning process of this. Uh, and, and as we got closer to it, uh, I didn't realize this at the time, but thankfully there were people around me that realized, is that something began to happen in, in my heart. 
And it had, it had been happening for a long time, but somehow this event became fused in that place in my life where this, this particular thing was going to represent how well we were doing as a church. And so I became very, very, very driven to make this thing succeed. And it didn't really matter at whose expense. Because somehow in my mind, this, this event became a metaphor for the success of Jericho Ridge Community Church. I don't know how that happened, but I got it confused in my mind. And then, even further to that, I got further mixed up in my mind that somehow then my success as an individual and my reputation and me as a person was tied to the success of Jericho Ridge Community Church. And so suddenly this event became just a massive weight in my mind that it just had to go just perfect. But I wasn't going to be there, so I had to make sure that it was going to go just perfectly and it was going to succeed. And, and in my head, I knew that, that sort of all of that logic, it wasn't very logical, but somehow it made sense to me at the time. And so I became very, very driven, and I had tied my identity to the success of the church, which was tied to the success of this event, and so it became somehow disproportionately important for me at that time in my life. So I pushed, and I pushed, and I pushed on that thing. And I made asks of people that were just ridiculous types of asks to make sure that we were going to make this thing go. And I, uh, it wasn't because God was asking them to do these things. It was because I was asking them to do these things because somehow this was very important to me and that my ego was dependent on this thing. Well, it came time uh, to the, uh, the weekend, and so I went off for my fishing trip uh, and came home, and I found out that the event, it didn't go so well. <laughs> it wasn't a huge failure. It just wasn't the success that I had made it out to be in my mind. And so I kind of, I wasn't really sure how to feel about that because I was kind of conflicted uh, because my own ego and identity had become attached to it in some way. And so about a week after that, I got a call from some friends to go out for lunch. And I thought, oh, this is going to be fun. We'll go out for a nice lunch and we'll talk about, I don't know, we'll shoot the breeze and see what happens. So we all sat down for lunch and I can remember coming in. And you know when you come into those environments where immediately you sit down and the tone is not the tone that you thought was going to be at the meeting. There's sort of like a nervousness, and there's, there's an uncomfortableness around the table, and I thought, oh, oh, this isn't the meeting that I thought I was coming into. So we sat down, and we started to talk, and we ordered, and all this stuff. And I can remember very, very clearly, suddenly, the conversation began to shift. And these guys began to say, and name things, and say, do you know what, Brad? We've noticed a few things in your life. We've noticed that you've become very, very driven around particular issues. We've noticed that that maybe isn't the most healthy thing for you, for your family, for the church as a whole. We think that that might have something to do with you tying your identity to the success of the church in some way. So let's just probe a few questions there. If Jericho Ridge shut down tomorrow, how would you feel about that? And I thought, you know, I tried to over-spiritualize it and say, well, then, you know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But... Really, in my heart, I was like, oh, man, I would be, as a person, I would feel like very, uh, I would feel unmoored in a lot of ways. Like, I would feel like somehow my identity would have been harmed and that people would look at me and go, there goes the guy who tried to get that whole Jericho Ridge thing off the ground. And pff, a year after, it was a total abysmal failure. He's an abysmal failure. 
And I didn't realize that, but as these friends began to kind of peel back some of those dimensions in my life, they began to put their finger on those things and name it and say, we think this is unhealthy. We think that this is not who we want to be as a community, not who God God has called you to be as a person. You're driven by your ego, Brad, in this particular zone and not by Jesus and what he has for you and what he wants for us as a group. And so immediately around the table, I thought to myself, well, that can't be true. And I came up with a good list of reasons why I thought that it wasn't true. I immediately became defensive and said, well, you just didn't know, you know, all of these things. There were other circumstances at play, and so-and-so didn't do their job. And I, had, you know, I was fishing, and so therefore I couldn't control for all of the outcomes of all of this. But I knew deep in my gut that they were onto something. I didn't quite know how to deal with it, but I knew that they had put their finger on something of significance in my life. And I thought of all the reasons why they were off base, but then it came back to really the fact of the truth was that they had cared enough to say something and speak into my life in a significant way, to name those deeper places for what they were and not for what I thought they were and call me to something more pure and more biblical. And so after that point, I thought, well, I'm really messed up in my head about all these things. And so the only thing I know how to do when I get messed up in my head like that is so I, I called up a friend of mine who's a counselor and said, I need to come and see you. Let's talk some of these things out. And uh, so by the course of God's grace and, and some good investment in that, he helped me to kind of begin to unravel some of those things in my life and, and pull apart some of those identity issues where I had got wrapped up and where I had guarded myself from the truth and friends speaking the truth into my life. And I hope and I pray that I'm a different person today because of that encounter. At the time, it was a very, very painful experience for me because it cut very deeply. Looking back on it now, I see the reason why they did that. And I call it a little bit my Nathan encounter. You know that prophet from the Old Testament who went into David, who was the king, and said to him, you are that man, and named it for what it was, and called him to something different. But my friends did this with a spirit and a purpose and an intent that's, that's quite notably different than just coming in, going, getting in somebody's face and saying, you're an idiot, you're wrong, you need to change. Because sometimes we might be afraid of going into those places, uh, in those conversations with our friends and with those who are close to us in our lives because we've been hurt by people that maybe have not come at that with the right motives or experiences before. My friends came at it with a mindset that they wanted to assist me in my maturity and my growth as an individual and as a child of God. Do you remember those? The best way I can think about it is, you remember those uh, public service announcements from the early 1980s? Um, They had a whole series of uh, commercials and print campaigns uh, that were trying to raise awareness around the issue of impaired driving. And so they came up with a little slogan that they thought would help kind of stick it in everybody's mind. And you remember this? They said, friends don't let friends drive drunk. Remember that slogan? There's newer ones now that they've kind of gone over a few times. But, uh, and there's you know, all kinds of permutations that you can buy t-shirts online of, of this now, some of which are not very redemptive whatsoever. Um, but 
the, the phrase that kind of stuck in my mind with that is, friends don't let friends I've drunk. And the intent behind this is they were trying to appeal to you as a friend and say, you need to keep your friend's long-term health and interest in mind. Don't let them make short-sighted decisions in moments. You need to call them on things and keep their long-term health in mind. And so maybe a summary statement about what my friends were trying to do in that moment in that conversation around that restaurant table was uh, they were trying to say, listen, Brad, we want to help you grow and mature. And so maybe a summary statement might be uh, something like this. Friends don't let friends stay shrunk. Friends don't let friends stay shrunk. They don't let your spirit, they don't let your maturity as an individual and as a person and as a Christian stay in that place where it's going to be reduced and shrunk. They love you enough to challenge you and to push into that place in your life where they want and desire and design to see God's intent and his purpose be realized in your lives. And they love you too much to just sit around and let you kind of wallow in that place. They're going to push into your life and say, you need to grow as an individual. And this is going to be painful, but we want to walk with you in this process. Friends don't let friends stay shrunk. They call them to a place of maturity and health. And a friend who doesn't speak the truth into your life in that way, you might want to ask the question of how would you qualify or name that person? We talked about this last week, about acquaintances versus friends, and then true friends versus those who are there for you in the good times, but maybe not in those times when truth needs to be spoken. Because all of us need friends who can stand with us when we're down, but we also need friends who will speak the truth to us. And the key phrase is, in love. They'll speak the truth to you in love. We probably all have people in our lives that will speak a level of truth to us, but when it isn't spoken in love, it's very easy for us to bristle and guard against that and to list all kinds of reasons why they're off base and they just don't know me very well and they misinterpreted that comment and all of those things. But a true friend knows you well enough to be able to move into those places in your life where they can speak the truth in love and call something deeper out in you. So I want to ask you a few questions for you to wrap your mind around this morning as we think along those lines for application and reflection. And the first question is, uh, who has the permission in your life to speak the truth in love to you? Who has a permission to do that in your life? Are there people around you that you know when you sit with them, when you spend time with them, if they see an area of your life that needs shaping work, They'll name it, and they'll assist you in walking through and developing in your character and in who God wants you to be. Who has permission to speak the truth to you in your life? Who's able to see you for who you really are? You don't have to pretend with them. You don't have to posture with them. You don't have to do any of those things. They can speak the truth and love into your life because they know who you are as an individual. Who has permission to do that in your life? It's likely a short list of people, but for some of us, we may not have a person 
that we know is able to do that in our life at this point for whatever reason. And so maybe something for you to, to wrestle with and to pray and begin to talk to God about is, God, would you bring someone into my life that we can develop over time and nurture a friendship relationship that, that is that level of depth and is that level uh, where we can speak the truth to each other in love. Because these are the people that will help you see where you need to grow up, where you need to mature as a person, where you need to take some steps uh, towards things that maybe you're afraid to do. And they'll name them and have permission to walk through uh, that with you. The second question is um, essentially just a, a same permutation of that question is, are there people around you in your life that you know need to receive a word of truth? Who is it that's around you that might need to hear a word of loving and healthy correction spoken into their lives? Sometimes we hang out with our friends for years and years and years and years, and it's an elephant in the room that it's never named that that, has, that person has something in their life that needs to be addressed, and everybody knows it, but nobody's willing to say it. Nobody's willing to serve them as a true friend and identify that and say, do you know what? When you do that, all of us as your friends experience it in this way, and we, we want to walk through a corrective word of loving and healthy rebuke and reproof with you? Are there those around you who need to hear a word of loving and healthy correction? Maybe if you're a parent, uh, maybe there's elements, and no matter how old your children are, uh, in the home or out of the home, maybe there are elements that you see in their life that, that need shaping, and you need to speak to that in some way. But there's some difficulty and some distance around that. Ask God for wisdom as to how you might proceed in those places and in those conversations. But a word of caution before you rush out and think about all the people around you this week that might need a word of loving and healthy correction. The scriptures say that we need to check our motives very, very closely and carefully. And also our words very closely and carefully. Proverbs is full of examples. Like Proverbs chapter 16 talks about if you do this uh, through gossiping, a gossip, Proverbs 16, 4 says, separates close friends. So if you talk to all your other friends about how that one friend really needs to change that part of their life, that's not being a true and loving friend and offering a word of reproof. It's just gossiping and separating close friends. Proverbs 17 uh, says, love covers over a multitude of, of sins, but harsh words will separate close friends. And so there's ways to think constructively and creatively and helpfully about that. Because we probably all know people who think that they have that level of access into our lives to speak a word of loving rebuke and correction. And when they do it, we think, yeah, they didn't earn that. We're not that close a friend. Uh, I don't know what they thought they did or how their motives came off but they might just be exhibiting their own pride and arrogance. And so just a, a parting word on that from Ephesians chapter 4, of keeping that in mind, that the purpose of a loving reproof is to help us grow up. It's not to get something off your chest that you've always wanted to say about that person that really bothers you 
and you just are going to take this as the opportunity to let him have it and just level with him and say, here's all the reasons and things in your life that you need to change and you better work on it by next Thursday. Ephesians 4 talks about, and the phrase speaking the truth in love comes to us from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. And it's talking about how does a healthy family system function? Ephesians 4.15 says, when we're at that place, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ. That's why we engage in the types of conversations of loving rebuke and reproof, because we want to help each other grow like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes, he makes his whole body fit together perfectly, as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts to grow with the design and purpose and end result is that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 joins those two thoughts together. We can speak the truth to someone, but it must be done if we have their growth and heart and maturity in mind in a spirit of love, in a spirit of of uh, reproof that is accompanied by a compassion and a care for what uh, God has for their lives. And so who knows? Uh, it may be that uh, you need to take somebody out for lunch this week. And if somebody else from your friendship circle calls you and invites you out for lunch, uh, don't freak out. They may not, you know, this may not be the time that they're going to reprove and correct you. But it may just be that you need to act on this in some way this week. And so as we go from this place, I want to pray for each and every one of us that God would give us the wisdom and the courage to be able to rebuke one another in love where it's appropriate with the design and purpose of growing together as deeply spirited friends. So let's pray together. God, we want to say uh, thank you for your heart and design and desire to shape us into the people that you want us to be. You want us to be mature and complete and growing in a healthy way. You long for that experience in our lives. And so you use our friends, you use your word, you use all kinds of strategies to shape that in us, to help us grow up and to get beyond those places of immaturity in our lives. And so, God, in this place today, we want to submit ourselves to you, and we also want to submit ourselves to each other as a community and say, we want to open ourselves up to experience the loving rebuke and reproof of a friend because those are wounds that can be trusted. So, Father, where you are going to call others to speak into places of our lives, we pray that you would open up our spirits and our hearts, drop our defensiveness and our guardedness, and allow us to hear and receive that word from another friend that's spoken in that way. That it would allow us to grow and mature. Where you need us, God, to speak that word, I pray that you would give us profound humility and a profound sensitivity to your spirit and wisdom and discernment as we do that with one another. 
And so, God, as we go from this place, I pray that you would equip us with everything that we need to do your work that you've called us to do this week. Wherever we find ourselves, whatever place on our spiritual journey, we pray that you would open up our hearts to both give and receive those words of instruction, correction, and growth and life to one another. We ask all of these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit who sends us. Amen. Amen. Well, as always, friends, uh, if you have any uh, questions about things that we talk about, uh, we invite you to stick around, and our prayer teams will be available uh, at the tables. If you say, I just need to pray with somebody, and I got, a, I got a, something that's um, either something to celebrate in my life or something that I need uh, to really share uh, with someone about uh, something that's going on of a, a place of struggle or discussion, we'd love to stick around with you uh, and converse. Uh, don't forget that as we uh, launch into October now, uh, what Pastor Keith mentioned about all of the life groups, these are those places where you can cultivate those deeper levels of connection with each other. And so if you have any questions about that, be sure to talk uh, to Pastor Keith or any of the people that are named on those sheets. Go in God's grace and God's peace, uh, and uh, we'll see you uh, together when we gather next week. God bless.